as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. What is up, friends? My name is Vance Crow, and you are watching the Vance Crow Podcast. In just a moment, I'm going to have one of the best interviews I have ever done with Lord Matt Ridley, who is author of How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. It is such a fun conversation. I cannot believe I got to spend my Friday morning recording this interview with him all the way across the ocean over in the UK. Before I get to that interview, I want to let you know that I have made a radical change in my business model. I'm still planning on giving speeches next year and I'm doing online conferences, but I've taken the coronavirus time to work out some classes, some ways of thinking and some uh, ideas that I want to share with podcast listeners. So I have put together a set of courses. Right now I have three of them and I'm going to keep building them every single week. I'm going to keep adding more and more to them. Some of them are about how to become more engaging, how to get rid of us and ums in your speech. And one of them is just a series of conversations that I have with my intern, Ali Ali, which has actually been a really fun, enriching and uh, kind of exciting experience. He gets on there, he's been working on his projects, he tells me what problems he's encountering, and then we kind of talk through how would I handle different situations. So it's just one person's opinion, but I know that the podcast listeners are super interested in getting better at communication, at figuring out how can I do more, can I imagine a world in which I'm confident to talk about the things that I know about and to ask questions about the things that I don't. And uh, I would love to be a part of that. So for podcast listeners, I need some beta testers, and what I'm looking for is 15 people that I don't know, I'm not connected with, I've never met before, to write me and say, hey, I want to be in the in the channel. I want to check it out. And you can be one of the first people to take those three classes, let me know what you think, help me set up the culture of the network, and uh, we'll get it going. In a couple days, I'll announce the name of the network, but until then, if you are interested in uh, being a part of the first beta testers, the first 15 people, I think I have maybe 12 spots left, then write me an email at vance at vancecrow.com, and uh, I'll put you on the list. We'll send you out a code. Once we're up, you can be a beta tester. We'll give you a couple of weeks and uh, just let me know your feedback. So uh, I'm really interested. I'm really excited about this. It's a new thing. Now, buckle up for a conversation with Lord Matt Ridley on innovation, evolution, dealing with your critics, coming up with new ideas. It is a barn burner. I absolutely love it. And I hope you do too. Thanks for joining. I am so glad you're here. Lord, Matt Ridley, welcome back to the podcast. Vance, it's great to be back with you again. And this time I'm not sitting in a closet. It is hilarious. You have the most amazing background, but the last time we were talking, your background was like a wrinkled comforter with like little stuffed animals above you. So what have you been doing since coronavirus hit? (laughs) Well, I've been at home and I've been reading and writing and publicizing my book. So my book, uh, How Innovation Works, came out... uh, 10 days ago now, and uh, in the US, the UK launch is delayed until 25th of June, so two weeks time. And I, had, I wrote a, um, a, uh, uh, a, a, an afterword about the virus for that. So that kept me busy. And then I've been doing a huge amount of writing, partly about coronavirus, partly about innovation, etc. And of course, I can't leave home. And it's beautiful weather. Uh, and I'm in a rural area in the north of England. You've been here, so you know how nice it is. And um, uh, so 
uh let's you know that's that's what life I'm is wild right to. like it's it's a it's a rare time in our history i think everyone will remember this period of time and it's really hard to know what will it look like in the future how will we look back on it but i know for exactly. me part of it is i got to talk with matt ridley my uh my good friend so last yeah, night well, I mean, I, for most for most people this is a horrendous time you know i mean if you're losing your job or unable to work or threatened your life is threatened by the virus um i'm just saying that you know if if you're the kind of person who can work from home and you live somewhere nice uh, and you have plenty of green space around you it's not so bad for me i was uh very disappointed and i would say even depressed for a while when i was stuck at home because i do so much traveling and i love it i love being out with crowds and speaking but the coronavirus forced even me to be like, all right, really, what is the technology right now for doing telepresence? How, how much can you do over a video camera? Can you do education? Can you do classes? And it actually helped me reinvent a whole bunch of my business model. Right. Like it's, it's been, it, uh, there's downsides for sure, but the upsides have been um, full of innovation because I was stuck doing what I was doing and now I got kicked into a new world. I think there's no doubt that this will unleash innovation. It'll unleash innovation partly by giving us uh, exposure to these new technologies like uh, video conferencing and so on. You know, there are several uh, brand names that I literally didn't know until a few weeks ago, like Zoom and Zencaster and Teams. I think I'd heard of Zoom, but I'd never used it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but the other way in which it'll unleash innovation, I think, is, you know, maybe less uh, uh, pleasant for people but crises like this do to some extent make space for new technologies to come through in place of older ones, new ways of working in particular. And almost everybody I talk to who's in business is saying, I'm rethinking how I structure my business. Um, I was hearing about a, a, a retail business that has decided uh, that it actually, you know, if it, if it sells stuff by appointment, uh, sort of click and collect stuff it actually does better business than before because it doesn't end up filling its store with people who are not making a decision <laughs> it only gets people who are interested in through the door so there's there is some there are you know th there are going to be new approaches to retail there are going to be new approaches to uh, meetings uh, you know i personally hope that um, my doctor my lawyer my accountant can see me remotely in future maybe not my dentist or my hairdresser that may not work so well but <laughs> i mean you just imagine the culture change that we took just the amount of time given back to people's lives right so the the it's not just going to see your accountant or your lawyer that costs you time it's the drive it's the parking it's the getting in there now you lose the interaction and the serendipitous collisions that you don't know what's going to happen when you run into somebody randomly but you get you get something back that's very hard to give human beings, which is more time. Yeah, although I think one one can't underestimate also the degree to which for certain kinds of meetings, like Zoom meetings with more than five people in them, it's a very unsatisfactory medium. You know, the business that you can't interrupt people, that, that you keep finding you're talking over people, et cetera, et cetera, that the, the, the quality of the line isn't always ideal. Um, so I, I th we will go back to a lot of face-to-face -face interaction. I'm very interested 
in the psychology of this. Um, I feel it myself, and I'm hearing about this on a wider scale, that people are um, uh, mentally quite prepared to believe that it's safe to go back out there, but they're kind of psychologically still a bit scared about it. Um, you know, I can't remember, how do I catch a train or a plane? How early do I have to set out? You know, what's it like passing lots of people in the street when I've been told to fear contact with strangers? You know, there, there is a psychological impact that I think will be quite profound for a while. I remember about a month into the coronavirus lockdown, I had somebody delivering groceries and I just wasn't paying attention when they came to my house. And suddenly there was a stranger at my house, which ordinarily would not have been that big of a deal. But now I found myself being in that fight or flight, like I could taste adrenaline in my mouth. And you think like, human beings need to interact with one another, because this is not a great psychological reaction to seeing right. another human being. Right. Right. I mean, back in the um, uh, uh, Paleolithic, a stranger was a threat. You know, I mean, somebody approaching your encampment uh, for, who you didn't recognize was probably an enemy. So deep inside us, there must be a little bit of that, which we've managed to overcome. You know, we do. Uh, uh, there's a lovely, um, I remember a, 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 an anthropologist saying to me once, imagine chimpanzees boarding a plane queuing up and boarding a plane and bumping into each other and saying sorry you know it just doesn't work i mean chimpanzees kill each other if they're strangers <laughs> you know? um, well, last night i was with a group of guys and we were talking about our our weekends and stuff and i was very excited and said hey, i'm going to be interviewing you and somebody had not heard of you so i described you as a guy who got his start or at least where i found him explaining evolution in a way that made you like come alive it made it so it wasn't just like oh survival of the fittest but how are there various strategies and and how does it met out now you're talking about innovation and it seems to me that innovation is one of those things that it's like what is there to say about it people run into a problem they solve the problem that's innovation how can you write an entire book going from being able to talk about the sophisticated aspects of evolution to this is this is what innovation is well, partly it's the same thing as evolution. Um, evolution and innovation are, in a sense, just just the same process. That is to say, the the creation of improbably useful and detailed complex structures out of the world um, with the use of energy. You know, that's what an organism does. It makes, you know, a heart and lungs and a brain um, out of food. Um, but what do I do as an innovator? I mean, not, I'm not, what does somebody do as an innovator? They, they take a lump of metal and turn it into an iPhone. It's the same thing. They need energy to do it, but they end up with something that is non-random, functionally effective, complex, and highly improbable. Couldn't come about by accident, and it's the same process. So I, I genuinely see it as a... That's why I have a chapter in my book called prehistoric innovation in which I talk about the invention of farming which was probably a pretty uh, unconscious process um, it was probably a very very gradual thing uh, in various different parts of the world at the same time when the climate settled down at the end of the ice age and became much more predictable it became possible for one group of hunter-gatherers to sort of just gently nudge nature towards producing the crop of grains again next year uh, or the animals or whatever it was and then I talk about um, 
the innovation of the dog 40,000 years ago, the, the domestication of the dog. Probably the dog took the initiative. It started hanging around human encampments. It wasn't something that somebody said, you know what, I'm going to try and train a wolf. It wasn't like that. It would have been a very gradual evolutionary process. Uh, and then I talk about the, you know, the first stone tools, the sort of flowering of, 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 of uh, human ingenuity that happened sometime before 100,000 years ago in Southern Africa, which gave us a much wider range of tools. What was going on there? Well, it was something to do with the density of the population living on seafood, which enabled them to have a division of labor, uh, exchanging and specializing, and that led them to create specialized new tools and things like that. Again, it's not a conscious process. And so eventually in that chapter, I end up talking about the origin of life. When from the randomness at the bottom of the sea somewhere, some molecules got captured in these little pores with electrical currents across them. And that enabled them to somehow use that energy of the electrical currents to end up being a bit more ordered, a bit less disordered. And that gradually turned itself into what we now call life. So in a sense, life is just a technology or technology is just a biological process. There's something almost magical when you talk about electricity moving across either, you know, oxygen and then turning into cells. You're talking about some level of organization. Does this give you this like uh, tingly feeling or is this something that you get excited thinking about? To me, it feels like the same way when somebody to describe something on such a finite level, so small is the same as describing the universe, right? Being able to see far off into space. So do you feel this sense of mysticism and awe when you think about electricity causing organization? Absolutely. I, I mean, ever since I first got excited about evolution, about genetics, uh, about uh, all these aspects of science, it has never left me the thrill of imagining what science makes it possible to imagine whether it's the unbelievable scale of the universe the depth of geological time uh, the extraordinary insight that the secret of life is a digital linear code i mean i wrote a biography of francis crick and he and james watson 28th of february 1953 uh suddenly for the for the first time in history saw something that had never been seen before and could never be unseen again. And that is that right at the heart of life was a digital linear system that copied itself. And that was the secret of life. It wasn't something to do with quantum physics or um, spiritual mumbo jumbo. It was this weird little thing that there is digital information there copying itself. Now, you know, these kind of things are so thrilling. And I, I would say to any child, yes, Art can be beautiful. Yes, literature can be beautiful. Yes, religious insights can be enjoyable. But there's nothing to compare with a, a, a true scientific insight. And far from taking the mistress, mystery and mysticism out of life, great science actually takes you deeper into greater mysteries. Um, it actually increases the, the wonder uh, at the heart of, 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 of the world, I think. 
In your role with deep diving into Watson and Crick and innovation and evolution, I would imagine you would have to be very, very comfortable with not understanding things as you get in there. Because the deeper you go, the more complicated they become. And so in order to get somewhere deeper, you have to go further away from what you know. What, what do you think prepared you to be able to handle over and over and over again going into these difficult, complex places? Well, um, there are certain difficult, complex places that I try to go into and I just can't handle it and I'm not capable. It's my brain isn't good enough or whatever. Most mathematical things of uh, an extreme mathematical, and my brain isn't a very good mathematical brain. But in biology and in genetics in particular, I often find subjects to be dauntingly difficult. I really don't know what this paper is talking about. I don't know what this word means. I don't know what this concept is. I'm going to have to go back and read something else before I can tackle this paper. And then I go back and read something else and think, well, I don't understand this either. I've got to go even further back. But what, what uh, reassures me that I can eventually comprehend this stuff, and there's a wonderful feeling when it does suddenly click, you know, when you know, uh, you know, I, I've been looking into the virology of, of the coronavirus a lot recently. And when, when, it, when it does finally dawn on me what a furin cleavage site really is uh, and uh, why it's different from something else, what, what makes me confident that I can do that is probably the fact that I had a wonderful genetics tutor when I was at Oxford who was himself a leading geneticist. And it was at the time when how genes were translated into proteins was still being worked out. Uh, in detail. And he was right at the forefront of this. And he gave us an infectious excitement about the knowledge that was coming available. And he sort of said, look, this is what we think at the moment, but we might be wrong. And I found that so exciting just to be told that, you know, I had reached the frontier here. This wasn't a case where uh, this stuff had been catalogued and uh, agreed upon. This was the hypothesis at the moment. So I, I love that idea that, that, that the job of the scientist and the science writer is to take you to the edge and look over. I have a friend that's a mathematician and I have asked him to come on the podcast and he's been like, no, I have no interest in that because I spent eight years getting to the frontier. It took me all this time to do this mathematics and I didn't study how to communicate it to other people. It's, I'm, I'm working with irrational numbers that literally are imaginary. They're not real. You can't draw them in, in some concrete way. And he's like, if I go to describe this, the only way I can do it is if I say it is like something else. But mathematics is so pure that to try and say that it is like something else actually breaks what's beautiful about it. And at first, I was kind of resentful of him, right? I was sitting there being like, who are you to say that this is impenetrable? But then I kind of respected him because there's very few people that will ever tell you like, you know, this is just not my thing. I don't need to win you over. I'm painting seascapes. There's only a few people that can even see these seascapes. And that's fine with me. What do you think yeah. of that level of uh, that, that type of thinking? Well, I think that, that, that is more of a problem in the mathematical end of science than in the biological end, where in the end, it's just, uh, you know, there's nothing particularly conceptually difficult. It's just very complicated, uh, as it were. So I think he's, he's right. I mean, I have tried to, I remember trying for a long time to write an article about string theory 
Uh, and in the end, you just get a lot of hand-waving metaphors and hope that, that the reader is satisfied. Um, but the one, <laughs> the one beef I have with, my, uh, with other science writers and with, with journalism generally is, and, and I'm constantly having arguments with editors about this, I've had two such arguments in the last month, is, that, is, is the idea that if you must leave out the detail in order to make it comprehensible. I don't think that works. Because if you say, um, Dr. Vance Crow has discovered a cure for cancer, um, uh, this is very exciting and he hopes to make a billion dollars. That's not actually that interesting a story. The interesting story is Dr. Vance Crow has discovered a cure for cancer. The reason he's excited about it is because it addresses a weird little phenomenon inside the cell that is found only in certain kinds of cancer cells and not in healthy cells. And the way it works is this, that, and the other. And constantly you find articles about science trying to leave the interesting stuff out, you know, and cut straight to the chase. And that seems to me... To, to lose half the fun you know it, sure you don't have to put every detail in and sure you don't have to use every long word you know you call something a version rather than an allele or you know you, know, you use anglo-saxon words instead of latin ones but you've got to you've got to try and explain what's going on because that's the excitement that's the, the detective story you know so then dr crow realized that if he did this he might find that and that was the breakthrough you know that's you you've got to tell 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 it like it is i uh used to present i mean when i was working with monsanto before i would encounter these scientists that would tell me something and then i would try and repeat back for them what they'd just taught me and because it'd be a lot easier just to skip over the details and they would keep stopping me and so i'd be like starting to talk and then they'd interrupt me and say oh no that's not quite right and at first or for a very very long time it's not even a quick process you, I was resentful because I was like, just let me get it done, right? We can go back and fix the details later. But then you start to realize like, wait, if you want people that actually are going to deeply understand this so that you're communicating something that matters, if you get the details wrong, then the end result is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And, and to an extent, you've got to understand it much more than you're going to put in the, the piece you're writing. You know, you, you've you've got to, uh, you, 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 in order to simplify it, you've got to understand its complexity. That's, is that a profound remark or a sort of, Yogi Berra might have said that actually. So, you know, it's, it's easy to be struck by your background that you have many, many books there. And it, what strikes me is you're talking about details and fine grain reading how do you set up your day so that you have enough time to read and write and participate in social media and be in governance? And how do you do this? Uh, badly. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. And it's not like it used to be. 20 years ago, I would sit down and read for long periods of time. Now I, you know, I read for five minutes and then somebody sends me an email or sends me a text or sends me a WhatsApp or sends me a direct message on Twitter or, you know, I mean, there are all these damn channels of communication to, to interrupt one's day. Um, uh, and, and, but, you know, I use social media to navigate two interesting pieces. So uh, 
another way of looking at it is that although I'm constantly being interrupted, some of the things I'm being interrupted by are, have you seen this article in such and such? No, I haven't. That's interesting. Um, I go straight to read it and I read it. And actually, you know, if it's no use, I don't read it. But if it's interesting, I read it. And suddenly I'm, I'm following it up and it leads me to another article and so on. It's like being in a library. I mean, I spent a lot of time in real libraries when I was uh, writing earlier books. My first three or four books were researched 80% in libraries. You know, I would be in the university library near here uh, for many hours at a time. uh, And I would be reading a paper in a journal and it would, and I would then look in the references and go and get another paper off the shelf and look that up and so on. I'm just doing the same thing, just virtually. I haven't set foot in a library for 10 years now. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So as long as you use it right, the infinite library that is the internet is extraordinary. That's right. And I think that the biggest challenge is that it is filled with pitfalls of places that you can go have any sort of distraction that is possible for the human mind to come in contact with exists on the internet many, many times over what could distract you at the library. And there was lots of information at the library. Yeah, but back in the days when I was in a library, people didn't send me funny videos about dogs and cats doing things, which is... (laughs) Which is a pity in a way. I would have liked some some of those. <laughs> so what do you think about um, the innovation is not like in the book, tell me about where, where you're going with this, with the, hey, the, you know, we, we were talking before about prehistoric and tools, but you af- must take this all the way out to modern day. Oh, yes. No, I mean, the book is mainly about modern technologies, although quite a lot of historical examples. So I go back and look at steam engines, but I also come forward and look at search engines. I talk about social media, artificial intelligence, um, uh, all this, you know, modern biotechnology, all these different uh, technologies. But I try to set them in the context of comparing the development of insect-resistant biotechnology, say, with... um, the first development of the potato, um, which is 500 years ago, um, as it were. We've only had potatoes for 500 years? In Europe, that's true. From, but they were grown in they, the Andes and then they brought were grown, They were grown in the Andes, but when they first brought to Europe, I mean, they're just such an interesting innovation from, for the, from the rest of the world's point of view, because they, they uh, are an incredibly uh, productive um, food you can you can basically grow more calories with potatoes than almost anything else if you've got suitable um growing conditions but uh you know brought to the canary islands sometime in the 1500s and didn't really work very well at first because they're 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 a tropical plant a high altitude plant um and they're they're looking for a certain kind of day length so they wouldn't fruit in uh the, the the northern summer uh, but somebody selected a variety in the uh, Canary Islands that did. And from there, they went to uh, uh, Belgium, really, the, the, the low countries, which was Spanish at the time, and, and then suddenly all over Europe, but patchily, and it was really patchy. There were places that wouldn't take them. France was very slow in adopting them. Germany was very quick in adopting them. Eventually, the French realized that the Germans kept winning wars against them. The Prussians kept winning wars against them. 
because their soldiers were better fed because they were eating potatoes. <laughs> you know, so it became a sort of military necessity to adopt this innovation. What was the, of, what was the resistance to the potato? Why, why, why would they oppose the potato? Because it, well, here's, here's it's one of the reasons it's not mentioned in the Bible. <laughs> Whoa. So we a lot, can't, a lot of foods not mentioned And then there was a, a guy called Theophrastus van, von something Heim, who's who, otherwise known as Paracelsus and his, uh, theory, which was extremely popular at the time, uh, was that plants resembled the diseases they cured. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, so this, this theory got somehow muddled. So people started to think that potatoes caused leprosy because a sort of wrinkled potato looks like a finger with leprosy. Um, so there was this theory that potatoes were causing leprosy. You know, so all this kind of, I mean, this pseudo weird stuff happens all the time. Coffee is a lovely example of resistance to innovation. I, I write about it in the book. Coffee comes into Europe in the 1500s, again, same sort of era uh, from Arabia. But even in Arabia, it's a new uh, drink and it's been banned. It's been banned in Cairo. It's been banned in Constantinople. It's still being drunk because every time the Sultan bans it, somebody eventually starts serving it again in a back street. Um, uh, but it comes to Western Europe, it's banned there. And it's banned on the, on, uh, well, there are two reasons. One is that the competing technology of wine and beer doesn't like this competitor. So uh, the wine and beer industries. Um, uh, campaign against it and they actually use you'll recognize some of these features they use medical scientists to back their claims so they go off to the local university in marseille and say this all this coffee everyone's drinking is bad for us isn't it and the professor basically says well give me a million pounds and i'll prove it's bad for you so he writes a report uh saying that coffee dries out the lymph nodes and uh, destroys the liver it's all nonsense but uh you know it, it gets published and so the authorities said we better ban this dangerous uh, drink called coffee but what the time other period was this this is we're talking about the 1600s oh my god i didn't know they were doing the papers and the scientists yeah. things back then it's a really interesting example actually i mean i dug out this paper i mean it's 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 it, it would i mean greenpeace would be proud of it it's uh, <laughs> not bad <laughs> But then the other reason that you're getting opposition to coffee uh, is because um, coffee gets drunk in coffee houses. And the problem with coffee houses is people are sitting in coffee houses and they're a bit animated because they've just had a caffeine shot. Uh, so they indulge in conversation. Um, and while they're indulging in conversation, they gossip. And one of the things they gossip about is whether or not the king is doing a good job. And quite often they come to the conclusion that he's not. And the king doesn't like this. And so again and again, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a usurper sultan in Constantinople who'd killed most of his family to get the job. And he banned coffee explicitly on the grounds that the fact that he killed most of his family to get the job was a topic of conversation in the coffee houses, right? 
can't have that. And King Charles II in England does the same. He issues a proclamation closing down all the coffee houses in London uh, in 1672 um, uh, on the grounds that um, uh, people are going into coffee houses and telling lies. It's fake news that, that he objects to. Oh, but I have to tell you the best coffee story. And I don't want to tell you all the stories in the book because people have to go out there and buy it. Oh, and, I'm hooked, man. I'm going to get this book. <laughs> this is great. I'm Go, go, go. <laughs> best coffee story which is really late it's in the 1700s is that that in sweden the um uh the the usual suspects come along and say to the king you know you've got to ban this coffee stuff it's bad it's, it's disastrous and oh yeah by the way we're funded by the beer industry but uh, we won't tell you that um and so the the uh, the king says um well, I'm not convinced that it's bad for you. I would like to do a double-blind trial, a proper scientific randomized controlled trial to see whether it works. He doesn't quite put it in those terms, but that's what he's saying. So he says, find me two convicted murderers, right? Put them in different cells in jail and give one of them nothing but coffee to drink and nothing but the other one nothing but tea to drink. And we'll see which one dies first. And then we'll decide whether to ban coffee or not. <laughs> okay. Now, the beauty about this story is that the first person to die was the doctor overseeing the experiment. The second person to die was the king. The third person to die was the tea drinker. And the fourth person to die, the last person to die, was the coffee drinker. <laughs> coffee wins! <laughs> <laughs> I, th I mean, that is mind blowing in and of itself, particularly for a moment like right now, where it feels like everyone is battling over the science. What does this science say? What does that science say? How should we? And, and flipping is to ought. You know, we know this is what is true, and therefore we ought to do this. To me, it, I, it feels almost refreshing in a way to know that that's going on since the 1600s. Like, I we agree. can survive this. I agree. It is quite reassuring that, that, you know, they tried to ban margarine, they tried to ban recorded music, they tried to ban the tractor, they tried to ban uh, the umbrella. You know, handsome cab industry didn't want people uh, going around sheltering from the rain under umbrellas. They wanted people hiring a cab. And this is in London in the 1700s. Um, so they made up all sorts of stories about people having their eyes poked out by umbrellas. Which is true, you can have your eye poked out by an umbrella, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, <laughs> so, so you're right, these novelties do survive these attacks in a lot of cases. One of the differences, though, is that if you look at Europe and genetically modified organisms, you know, biotech in agriculture, here's a whole continent turning its back on a whole technology. Now that it has happened in the past. I mean, the, again, the Ottoman Empire managed to ban printing for a couple of hundred years. Um, but it's quite scary to think that a whole continent will ban a whole technology. It hasn't quite banned it, but it's made it impossible to develop it. And that, it does feel to me that the, the, the combination of um, uh, jealous incumbent interests uh, overweening bureau bureaucracies and uh, fear-mongering activists are somewhat capable of achieving even greater things than they were in the 16 and 1700s. 
when you say over over is it overreaching bureaucracies what you were used a word there i didn't quite catch it it was different i think i said overweening um but yeah it's the same thing overreaching yeah i mean basically uh, bureaucrats who love having more rules to enforce yeah so a crazy thing happened this week just i think yesterday in the united states that i was shocked that i didn't hear about it earlier the epa which had registered dicamba which is a chemical that you put over genetically modified soybeans and they said they they pulled the registration so we have already planted i think it's something like 30 million acres the united states in dicamba tolerant soybeans and that they were preparing to use this chemical to go over top of it now this is not like the easiest chemical to use it's not the best but it's been around for a long long time and now it just got its card taken away which means the we're going to have like an actual problem we have the potential to have a very real problem in the united states because uh dicamba was a thing that could kill a plant called palmer pigweed which uh, causes all kinds of problems in the field and it's glyphosate tolerant so meaning that we don't have another chemical that will magically knock this plant out so now if you knock that out you now are going to have 30 million acres that are exposed to the potential of not of not being able to get rid of the weeds. So so what is our option going to be here to right. use way outdated uh, chemistry or labor? And and this I mean I don't think it'll wipe out all of the soybean crop, but it certainly will put um, uh, hem on that when people have already planted the seeds before you took away their chemical. Right. Well, that's not dissimilar to what's happened in Europe over neonicotinoid um, pesticides, insecticides, which um, uh, were effectively banned uh, on spurious grounds that they were killing honeybees. And when some of us pointed out that honeybee numbers were going up, not down, they said, oh, well, they're killing wild bees. Uh, and you say, well, are they going down? Well, in some cases, they might be. You know, that's basically all the evidence suggests. And um, neonicotinoid uh, insecticides are particularly useful because they they're seed dressings you dress the seed in it and the, the plant is then uh, uh, insect proof but you don't have to spray it on so it's far less destructive than spraying on a pyrethroid a more broad spectrum insecticide that is sprayed all over the place um, and yet they because it was so widely used they targeted it they easily got politicians and media to get behind them and it's now banned and as a result the the, the rapeseed crop in the uk the canola crop as you'd call it in the us um is now failing most years in the southern in southern britain anyway um, because of flea beetle you can spray pyrethroids on to kill the flea beetle but it's more expensive more difficult and less effective and it's worse for butterflies and other insects that are passing nearby that are doing no harm that are not part of the problem but are nonetheless collateral victims uh, of spraying so um it's been a wholly counterproductive point of view not just for uh, the productivity of farming but also for the environment so uh, th this these campaigns against insecticides and modern farming technologies are are very dangerous indeed and, uh, you know, they're all, in the end, driven by um, ambulance-chasing lawyers trying to make huge killings out of lawsuits. You live in this very unusual place, a bridge between explaining uh, complex science and innovation and understanding it and 
also being very active in explaining things like, hey, this is my perspective on neonicotinoids and why they're better. To do that inserts you into a fight, which to me, I, I, um, I'm highly disagreeable. I like having a conversation and it's fun for me if you say something I don't agree with and we go back and forth. But when it's um, writ large, when it's you disagreeing with masses of, of people about something like whether or not we should use GMOs, how do you keep your mind flat or calm or, or um, moving forward? Because the fight itself seems destructive and you seem to be the type of person that's building something, writing a book or, or you know, planting well, crops. Well, it, it's a really good question. And, you know, I have at times ruined my uh, mental health by uh, getting riled about the things people say about me, the ad hominem attacks and so on. Uh, and I tune them out. Now, I'm quite careful about it. I never read comments on Twitter uh, on my pieces. I mean, I sometimes come across them by accident, but I don't, I don't sit down and try and respond to the nutters who, who attack me. Um, if somebody writes a, a nasty review of my book, uh, I don't read it. Uh, I don't read the good, re good reviews either. I just try and just do my stuff. Um, lots of people will tell you what's in nasty reviews. I mean, years ago, when, 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 I, um, when I wrote Genome, um, uh, somebody gave it a particularly vicious review in the London Review of Books. Apparently, I still haven't read it. Uh, uh, but the number of people who wrote to me saying, I'm really cross about that review of your book. It was outrageous. They got it all wrong and they were really nasty about you. Uh, and I would write back saying, maybe, but I haven't read it. And they would say, oh, well, uh, let me get you a copy. No, the whole point is I'm not going to read it. Why should I waste my energy on it? So I, I think the only way to stay, stay positive, to, to, you know, to keep making your own point and not get dragged onto somebody else's point, is to ignore the, the attacks. Now, if somebody makes a reasoned, polite criticism of what you've said and says, look, I think you've got your facts wrong on this, uh, or please will you think again because of this, then you enter into a debate with them. And I do that all the time. You know, I'm not so, so blind that I never do that. Yeah, but, you're uh, not a gentle butterfly. I mean, you're, you're a no. guy that, that bounces back and forth. I mean, I think that that's what makes life so interesting is to find somebody that you respect and battle them with ideas. Like you, you walk away from a conversation with a person that is treating you with respect and they're not like, I want to destroy you for your beliefs, but instead I'm interested in using this data and what I read and what I've heard. Those are the ones that make you come out like excited and, yeah. and having built something as opposed to just burning it down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the, 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 the argument that's been hardest in this respect is climate change, where I'm what they call a lukewarmer, someone who thinks climate change is real and potentially dangerous, uh, but not nearly as bad as uh, the extremes are, are arguing. Uh, and that we have to be careful that we don't do more harm than good in some of the measures we take against it, because uh, the availability of abundant energy that doesn't destroy the environment in creating it, the energy, um, is quite important to civilization. You, now, you, I, I think you're the one that coined the phrase, or at least I heard it first with you, global greening. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, no, well, this is, this is very interesting because... Um, uh, the, the, there's a, a, a brilliant professor at Rockefeller University called Jesse Orzabel, um, who uh, I've talked to about lots of um, global phenomena um, and who's got some really interesting perspectives on things. And he let me know one day, he said, 
you know the carbon dioxide fertilization effect uh, and i said yes this is that if you put more carbon dioxide into a greenhouse the plants grow faster right that's been well known it's practiced all over the world every tomato grower uses it they deliberately pump co2 into greenhouses so they get more crop um uh, he said well the the satellites are now picking up evidence that this is happening on a global scale because of the increase of about a third in the quantity of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere um we are now seeing a significant increase in the amount of green vegetation on the planet and they worked out how to measure uh, the leaf area index of the planet the total number of green leaves on the planet if you like and compare it between one year and another and he said go and watch this um, record, record of a talk given by a professor at Boston University it's, it's publicly available talk um, where he discusses how they've done this and what the results are and they were very striking results they were that there was a roughly 15% um, uh, increase over 30 years uh, in the uh, amount of green vegetation growing every spring in the northern hemisphere and then disappearing every autumn if you see what I mean um, that's a lot um, uh, and this was verified by other data so you know if you measure the rate of growth in a forest uh, uh, you know on a small scale you can pick this phenomenon up if you measure the co2 level in the atmosphere it goes up and down by a greater amount every year than it used to which means there's uh, it means there's more more plants uh, take pulling it out of the air in the spring and putting it back in the air in the autumn um, and uh, so um, so I wrote uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal about this saying you know here's global greening this is a really interesting phenomenon um, and everybody came down on me like a ton of bricks what an idiot I was I'd misunderstood the study it was all wrong and da 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 um, and anyway it didn't matter if it was true you know and all this kind of thing and uh, rarely has there been such a foolish article and da 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 well, oh man, word. just so you're aware, I have taken real heat for repeating your argument on this, yeah. where people went out of their minds because I was like, I don't know, I heard this idea. What do you guys think? And people were like, how dare you suggest that? And I was like, I, it's just an idea. I don't, I don't it, know if it's it a good idea. It doesn't, doesn't fit their prejudices. Um, uh, and well, anyway, the, the long and the short of it is that eventually uh, uh, the, this professor published uh, an enormous paper um uh, about this in 2017 um which uh, was with huge number of co-authors from all around the world beijing university was the lead author and things like that um and uh, said yeah it's 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 a huge effect 70 percent of it is caused by carbon dioxide increases the rest is caused by warming or rainfall or synthetic fertilizer or these kind of things but but on net the world is getting considerably greener how much by well over 30 years it's like adding two continents the size of the mainland united states worth of green vegetation so imagine all of kansas and texas and everywhere covered in green things we've added that much green vegetation in twice over in the last 30 years now where have we added it well in the sahel region of africa but also in the tundra 
on in the northern forest they're growing faster too you know imagine one extra leaf on a pine tree or something like that or a bunch of extra leaves on a pine tree you wouldn't necessarily see it but it's there every year we're growing more green vegetation now that's that's food for insects it's food for gazelles it's food for monkeys it's food for people as well you know the reason uh, that the, the Sahel region, which was thought to be getting drier, is now getting greener. It, it's, this phenomenon is particularly true in arid areas. Um, so it's a, it's a small piece of good news. Now, it may be the case that it's not a good enough piece of good news to outweigh the bad news. And that's what people keep telling me is the, is the case. Um, uh, but uh, they haven't yet produced much good evidence. In fact, they've shown that... Um, that this phenomenon is likely to go on for several decades, if not more, uh, and that um, uh, it's resu resulting in much uh, it's resulting in much less use of water per increment of green vegetation that is produced. So it's making crops and things less water hungry as well. So uh, I think this is quite an important piece of news, um, and. Do you know what now, about seven years after that original article, do you know what they now say about me? They say, yeah, but of course that's true, but we always knew that was true. Oh, oh when you have to have burned so much and people have spilled so much ink about how you're terrible and then it just, it gets evaporated. That's yeah. wild. <laughs> but I mean, I, I have to say that argument is one of those things that until I heard it, I had never had a way of even thinking about it in a different way. And, and just the act of like, well, what happens if you, like you said, what happens if every single tree you have has just one more leaf? What does this change? I don't know, but it's a hell of a lot more fun to think about what does this mean than we know we're all doomed. There's nothing to be done about it. Those people over there need to change. And we all know it. Let's yell about it. Th this, um, I can become completely intoxicated with new ideas. And I think my biggest challenge in life, particularly if I'm, you know, if I find one of your books, I almost find myself being defenseless of like, is this a real idea? Is this a yeah. good idea? Because I'm just happy playing with them. It doesn't, it, people aren't living and dying based on whether or not I believe in global greening. <laughs> well, um, I, I mean, I, I try very hard never to jump on a bandwagon just because I like the sound of it it's got to really convince me uh, and I, I've quite often gone back to people who've made an argument that I suspect is right and would be good news for me if it was right because it confirms one of my other um, uh, beliefs in the world but I've gone back and said look I'm sorry you're not persuading me you know your 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 evidence is not good enough um, uh, and I try and raise a higher hurdle for things that I know I'm going to be happy if they're true than things that I think are wrong. Man, that's, words, I try and, that's I try and fight my own confirmation bias. Um, the only way really to fight confirmation bias in the world, and science is riddled with confirmation bias, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the way human beings are. They look for for things that confirm their view, not for things that disprove their view. The only real way to fight that is to have a red team and a blue team, to have people allowed to disagree. Because then Professor A 
uh, points out that Professor B is talking nonsense and they have a good old argument and the rest of us decide who's right and who's wrong. But if you say, no, Professor A and Professor B must agree on everything, must be on the same team and, must, and we must all agree what the, the, the truth is, then I'm sorry, you're not inventing a science, you're inventing a religion. I 100%, I think you're dead on with that. What do you think about, uh, and it's a little edgy, but what do you think about the peer review process? People are now calling that into question once the, once hydrochloroquine was, you know, seen to be a miracle drug now, not seen to be, and it's throwing everything up in the air. What, what do you think about the peer review process? Well, I think the peer review process has been irredeemably corrupted and spoiled for some time now. <laughs> oh, I've, I've watched it. I mean, I've watched it turn into um, a, a way for gatekeepers to keep uh, mavericks out of science. You know, for example, the amyloid hypothesis of uh, Alzheimer's uh, has been so dominant in the explanation of the etiology of, of Alzheimer's uh, that people who think that there are other things going on, that you need, to, that this is a symptom, not a cause of Alzheimer's, have been frozen out of the field. Um, uh, and there are plenty of examples of that. So there's a gatekeeper effect from uh, peer review. There's a you scratch my back, I scratch your back effect, whereby chums uh, give each other's uh, papers, good or bad reviews, depending on whether they're chums or enemies. Um, uh, and if peer review was anonymous at both ends, then I think it might work better. But it's asymmetrically anonymous what happens at the moment is that the reviewer knows the name of the author but the author doesn't know the name of the reviewer which is really just a license for sort of being rude to people actually so i i do think it's hugely problematic the way peer review has has become uh, an issue and also it's very slow so if you know during this last few months we have wanted to know every last thing about this virus as soon as it's available so everyone has been sticking out preprints and those preprints have not been peer reviewed and all of us have gone online and looked at them and said actually peer reviewed or not this is really good science this data is very clear it's very well presented its methods sound convincing etc cetera, etc cetera. or the opposite this Papers clearly rubbish. I'm not going to pay any attention. The true peer review is the world. You know, it shouldn't be one or two people deciding whether a paper is good enough. You put it out there and the world decides whether it's good enough. In the case of this latest issue with the Lancet publishing the hydrochloroquine uh, stuff, um, it seems like the, they published a peer-reviewed paper that said that hydrochloroquine wasn't working and the peers didn't do their reviewing properly because the data in it were made up it came from this truly dodgy uh, site which uh, has sort of three employees who claim to have data from s hundreds of hospitals all around the world on how trials were going uh, and it the data looked convincing superficially but scratch the surface and you find there was nothing there it's 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 fraudulent i think the lancet has very serious questions to answer about this uh, i think in the middle of a pandemic to publish a peer-reviewed paper that uh who is uh, the lancet by the way that's a phrase i've heard is that an organization what what is that 
No, it's an independent magazine. Um, it's a, it's a, a medical journal that publishes um, medical uh, papers and it tends to have a reputation and has for many decades have a reputation for publishing bolder hypotheses about medical issues, okay? Which I'm all in favor of. But I think to, to publish something that rubbishes a possible treatment based on uh, uh, fraudulent data and does so possibly with the motivation that the very left-wing editor of the journal, Richard Horton, doesn't like hydrochloroquine because Donald Trump does like hydrochloroquine. I'm sorry, but that's what's happening at the moment in this kind of world. And it's, it's not acceptable. You know, we need to be above petty political things. I don't know whether hydrochloroquine is any good or not. It might be useless. But I want, I want reliable data published on this. So as a person that has studied uh, innovation and how this process works, but then also understand the peer review process, how do you think if we want to have innovations that solve the problems we have and you need to use science and data, how would you set up the, the what was what, solving the problem that peer review was started to solve? Hmm. Well, I think it's just, it's a reputation thing. In other words, I think anybody can put anything out there but if you're The Lancet or you're Nature magazine, you should, the, edi the editors should act as the peers, as, as the, the people who decide whether something's good enough to publish, uh, whether it's reliable enough. They should go through the method section. They should go through the results. They should look up some of the backgrounds of the people writing the paper to make sure that they're not called Mickey Mouse or something like that. Um, and then they should publish it. And if the reading public says, you're publishing a lot of dross, I'm not gonna buy your magazine anymore. That's the true peer review. It's the same with an innovation, you know, a technology. The, the, the true judges of whether a technology is any good are the public. Um, take Google Glass, for example, which was a, a wonderful, brilliant technology developed by Google X, their skunk works at Google to uh, enable you to I can't remember what it did, but it kind of gave you a heads-up display inside your spectacles. Um, uh, brilliant piece of technology, very clever, very ingenious. Uh, they thought it was going to catch on. They made it look sexy. Turned out people weren't prepared to buy it. Um, and that's the true peer review. Have you used uh, one of these, a VR headset? Lately? Occasionally, but not, I mean, experimentally, but not, not much, actually. In the last six months, I, I, I mean, this is, it was expensive. It was 500 bucks or something like that. But this is a world-changing, shocking innovation, technology integration. You put this thing on and you are transported to a different world. And the latency issues are getting worked out and the sound. So I, I am, I, this is going to be a big deal. And if you haven't been able to play with one of these recently, but, I highly recommend it. Okay, so that's really interesting because three or four years ago, I, I, at Facebook headquarters, actually, I was, you know, playing with one and it was very impressive uh, and it was extraordinary. But I was sort of thinking, yeah, right, I'll wait till somebody makes it into a really accessible consumer device. And it, I didn't feel that had happened yet, but obviously this is now happening. Oh, I, uh, what right do you do? What do you watch on it? A movie? Oh, I, I sometimes watch interviews because now it's like you're sitting with a person. So a person being able to watch this interview on VR, 
it will be like they're sitting in front of you and then they're sitting in front of me. And it, it's a much different dynamic, but you can also play games and I watch a bunch of things on the oceans or I've, I went to a bunch of WWF rallies and monster truck rallies. Like I want to see what are these people going to 80,000 fans go to WWF. Let's go check it out without having to buy a ticket. And it's not the same thing, but it is way up close. So I, I, the best example I have is I had Jackie Joyner Kersey over. We didn't have much time. She came over, put the goggles on. This is serious athlete very serious woman puts it on and she starts giggling and playing and dancing with a robot and and you think like this technology has arrived it may not be all of where it's going but it is right. definitely there now right fantastic well I, I i want to try it also it could solve the problem that my wife and i and my daughter sometimes want to watch three different movies so we could all sit on the sofa watching our own movie. Yeah, that's very Black Mirror. Okay, I am so grateful that you were willing to do this. Um, what will people find in your book that we didn't talk about? And uh, give us the name of the book and how they can get it. The name of the book is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. They can get it on Amazon or any online bookstore. They can get it in real life, in real bookstores now too. They can get it on Audible it's, and they, they can hear me reading it if, if you like reading audio. Oh, that's what I'm doing. You're reading me this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it covers, it, it doesn't cover every innovation ever made. Of course not. I can't possibly begin to, but it covers innovations in energy and computing in public health, uh, in transport, in uh, Stone Age technologies, it covers failed innovations, fraudulent innovations, fake innovations, and it covers the lessons of innovation and the economics of innovation. So, so it's got a lot of stories, a lot of stories about weird, ambitious people who achieved extraordinary things, changing the world, uh, or didn't, and how they went about it. Well, Lord Ridley, I am so glad to see you putting more memes into the world. I hope they spread and multiply and grow because I, I really like the way that you view the world. So thank you for taking the time and energy to put into this book and having something to share. And thank you even more for coming back on the podcast. Really enjoyed the chat. All right, everybody, that is going to do it. Thank you so much to Lord Matt Ridley for coming on the podcast. This was one of the most enriching mornings that I could have possibly imagined. It was wonderful and it was good for the soul and I hope you found it exciting. If you are interested in becoming a part of the classes that I was talking about before, I'm offering a deal just to podcast listeners. I want some beta testers, some people that I don't know that can come check out what I'm offering. So in the future, we'll use it as a way for people to support the podcast. And if you support it, then you can get involved in an Articulate Ventures network where you can see classes, where you can interact with other people. And right now, for the next week or so, I need some beta testers. I need some people to take the classes, give me feedback, let me know how it's all working, test out the system. So if you're one of those people, let me know by writing me an email, vance at vancecrow.com, or you can DM me on Twitter. That'd be cool too, at vancecrow. Thank you so much for joining me. I will be back next week with some more barn burners and really enjoying having you along this ride for these great conversations. Ah, ah, ah.